This week on The West Block, the year that changed everything. A global pandemic, Iran, China, and a new American president. My year-end interview with Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne starts now. Thank you so much for making time for us, Minister. I know you have one of the busiest jobs in Cabinet. Well, thank you, and thank you for coming to Global Affairs, I must say. Uh, yes, indeed, 2020 was uh, eventful uh, for all of us. But I think sometimes when I reflected for this interview, I'd say I think 2020 showed uh, the fragility and resilience of humanity uh, across the world and, and certainly in our country. So uh, certainly there's a lot of lessons learned uh, from 2020. And, and everyone, our watchers, you, everyone worked very hard this year. You're the foreign affairs minister, and it was a year of unprecedented global change, both with the COVID-19 pandemic, but even when we all think back to how the year started off with Iran shooting down the Ukrainian Airlines jet that had Canadians on board, it shocked a lot of Canadians who didn't think that they were between the crosshairs. Then we saw the COVID-19 pandemic sweep across the country, uh, assassinations, major changes in the Middle East, in power alliances. What stands out to you as the most memorable or important moment from this past year? Well, you started with PS752, so let me say how uh, I lived through that. You know, I, I remember um, one evening, uh, this was the evening where uh, missiles were uh, shot at a military base where we had uh, a Canadian personnel and we were just assessing there was no uh, casualty, thanks, uh, thanks God there was no casualties. And I remember um, during the call I saw strolling on my, you know, we all look at social media these days, and, and I saw a, a very flash news report that said there's been a plane crash in Tehran, so I, I texted that to my colleagues. And I got something back and say, Minister, there's also a earthquake. And this, so I went to bed this way. And around, I think, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning, I got a call from our emergency operations center that said, Minister, you should, uh, you, you should wake up. You should be aware that uh, at that time, we didn't have a very accurate number. But we knew that many, many Canadians had perished in a plane crash. And now my mind started racing. And I said, are you talking about the plane crash that left Tehran for Kiev, and they said exactly. So that started racing, and from there, obviously, unfolded. Um, uh, you know, probably one of the the, the biggest tragedy uh, uh, for Canadians in, in terms of loss of life. And then we immediately got in motion. Uh, at that time, I said we have four priorities. First of all was to be there with the families. And the Prime Minister said the tone. He said, people first, you know, we'll be there for the families, we'll do what's right for them. So for me, priority number one was to get consular uh, access. As you remember, Canada uh, did not have, and still doesn't have, a, a, uh, a permanent mission in, in Iran. I mean, we had left almost a decade ago. Uh, so we had to work to the Italians, uh, who are representing Canadian interests, to make that possible. The second thing was to uh, repatriate the remains in accordance with the wishes of the families in a very respectful manner. And there was issue about dual citizenship, so we wanted, and, and you know, fortunately, this took place in a respectful way. The third thing was the investigations, both the air safety investigations, which as you know is still ongoing, and the criminal investigations. Um, and finally was the reparations, which were still very much uh, uh, in the process of getting for the family. And the report from Special Advisor Goodell 
I think was good in many ways, but one was also to frame the 21 group of questions, the very legitimate questions that the families, the government of Canada, and for that matter, the international community is asking of Iran. Um, uh, so what happened exactly? Why was the airspace open? Why was the airport, airport open? And, and also uh, charting a way forward to say never again. So how can we reform the international um, um, bodies of laws that governs uh, obviously the uh, uh, civil aviation in the world? Yeah, how do you enforce that on a country like Iran, which so far has not been cooperative in, in being transparent, initially denied that the plane was shot down, has lied to the international community, has refused to return the remains of some of those victims to Canada and to other countries. They don't seem to care. Well, I stand up uh, uh, against them at every step of the way. I never, I, I don't judge them by their words, but by their actions. And one of the things that we did, uh, Mercedes, from the very beginning, which I think has made the difference, First of all, the family made the whole difference and their trust and their advice to us so that we can, we've been in lockstep at every step of the way. But one thing we did at the very beginning, and again, this is going back almost to the text diplomacy, is that creating this international coordination and response group. Because when this happened, one thing I, I thought, I said, well, we, we better be united because if we're united, we're going to be stronger. So, you know, I'll put that in a book one day, but I did text my colleagues and say, why don't we form that group uh, with the United Kingdom, Sweden, Afghanistan, and Ukraine, um, and say we will be better equipped, uh, not only if we look at it from a, with, for example, the Transport Safety Board of Canada, uh, the new foreign team we put together, uh, uh, which provide all the expertise and intelligence we need, but also that we can rely on our colleagues in the United Kingdom, uh, in Sweden, uh, in Ukraine. And that, I think, if you ask me, one of the things that has been making a difference is that we have been united from day one and with that we have been asking on behalf of the families on behalf because i happen to chair the group so we don't speak only as canada but we speak as the uh the group of countries representing uh, families of the victims and on behalf i would say of the international community to ask these very legitimate questions for which we expect full some answers but you know we do that with eyes wide open uh, we know what Iran is capable of, and that's why at every step of the way we've been challenging, we've been pushing, we've been speaking up, and we'll continue because we promised one thing to the family was uh, justice, transparency, and accountability, and these words resonate. I spent three hours with the families, and, and I can assure you if, if there's one part of the job, which is always the most... Uh, uh, gets inside of you is when you have to represent people. You're, you're the face of their fight. That's the same thing for Michael Covering and Michael Spaver and all the other people who are facing, um, you know, consular situations around the world. We did that with the repatriation. If you ask me one thing that I will always remember, I can assure you when I was with my family at home in Shawinigan in December 2019, at the time where we could have all our family, unbeknown to me would be PS752 and what unfolded the COVID and then the repatriation of hundreds of thousands of Canadians in, in destinations that I learned of, did not probably even know they existed, and, and having to bring back all these people. And, and one thing that I'm particularly happy is that in times of need, we responded present. We have their back. And, and if this is something which cut across everything I think we did this year is that we were there for Canadians. We had their back. We were there at the time, we're there now, we're there in the future. 
and, and repatriating was a very humbling experience because uh, when people are in need and for them you're kind of their lifeline to be able to get back. That's why I texted colleagues to open airspace, to open airports um, in ways that people could, could probably not believe if I showed them my text messages where I remember once where I got a call from one of the airlines and say, Minister, can, can you help us open the airspace? And nothing prepares you for that. You know, I'm a lawyer. I'm, 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 I'm a public servant. But in a way, I, I, I've never done that in my life. And then I got probably become somewhat of a travel agent for everyone, trying to open airspace, making sure people could get space. And, and our diplomats and our people and our civil service really stood up to the task. I mean, at some stage in the building you are, Normally, our watch center would have, what, 20 people? I don't know, 30 people on a 24-hour basis. We had 600 people. We trained people to become uh, consular specialists. We got like 2 million calls and emails. I mean, this, this was in, both in processes and in complexity because oftentimes what we have seen is that you could have a hurricane or you had a disaster, but this would be in one place, in one set of circumstances. But now we were facing circumstances in so you know India I remember where people are saying well we have people across India with different regulations in different place and then thanks to our cooperation we were able to, to get these people but I can think of so many examples in Peru I can think in in Latin America uh, we had people in in so many places and one of the things we created at the time again and that was Canadian leadership I think uh, that is not always visible to uh, our viewers, but at the time where we saw are the international institutions responding to COVID in the way that they should. And as you know, when this started, people would question whether we were really uh, living up to the task on the international community. We created a ministerial COVID group, and that's where we talk about the uh, air bridges. It reminded me of the war. I had to make sure that I was saying, well, we have to make sure we can have connectivity between Canada and, and Europe or, or North America for that matter. We have to make sure we keep supply chains open. We have to keep sure that not everyone close their border because how can people transit? We still had people in, in the Middle East, in Africa. I can't remember how many people in Africa. We needed to make sure, for example, they could transit to London or that Paris would allow our people to go. So in this, what seemed to go at the, at the pace that we had never seen before in terms of information to absorb, process, and to make the right decision, um, you know, this was unprecedented. And, and I really want to say thank you to Canadians to, uh, to, give, in, uh, to give us their trust. Uh, sometimes we're telling them, uh, hold on for a minute, we're, we're fixing. But we deconflicted so many things at the same time that I think one day I'll put that in the book. I, I'm still struck by the idea of you texting to open airspace. That's incredible. Uh, one of the other big stories this year, of course, and it has been now for two years, unfortunately, is that of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They, of course, have been unjustly held in a Chinese prison. For, I would even say arbitrarily detained. Arbitrarily detained, which is what you guys say officially, unofficially. We hear the term hostage taking coming out of this department frequently. Um, we spoke to the Prime Minister on Tuesday, and I asked him if he thought that there would be good news for the families before the new year. And in response to that, he said, I certainly hope so. I've never heard him be that hopeful on a timeline before. Do you have that same hope that there might be good news for those families before the new year? Well, the first thing I'd say is that, let's be clear, uh, two years have been stolen in the life of Michael Covering and Michael Sperver. 
and two, two years have been stolen from their families and their loved ones. I happen to speak to them. And, and I must say, uh, Mercedes, those are some of the most um, sobering moments for me because, you know, I'm there fighting with the prime minister for them at every step of the way and, and talking to their family with two years have been stolen uh, from, from either a brother, from a loved one, or from, from, from a, a son is, is some of the most uh, humbling discussion you can have because obviously we're saying we're doing everything we can. And I think we, what we have achieved this year, uh, first is that I think the world doesn't see anymore Michael Covering and Michael Sperver as being two Canadians arbitrarily detained in China. They see that as two citizens of a liberal democracy. And I think, you know, that's the strength that we have. We gain momentum. The world is talking. I'm talking to my colleagues around the world. Everyone knows about Michael Covering and Michael Sperver. And they know that we need to stand up and speak up together against coercive diplomacy. Because for me, that's one of the worst kind of coercive diplomacy is to arbitrarily detain um, uh, people. And so in that sense, we have been able, and you've seen many examples of that, of allies around the world. Europe spoke about that in their summit. So in a sense, there is a sense that this is beyond. It's not anymore just a bilateral issue. It's liberal democracies in the world, which are seas of the case of Michael Kovring and Michael Sperver with us to make sure that we get their release and bring them back home as soon as possible. On the hopeful side, I would say, you may recall that sometime this year we cause a meeting to happen in Rome with my counterpart, Wang He. And I said, cause to happen, because it's very unusual in diplomacy that two foreign ministers would meet in a third country, apart if you have an international setting or conference or something. But for two ministers to meet while both of us had an official visit in Italy, for that matter, is pretty unusual. But we caused the meeting to happen um, uh, from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. And I would say in diplomacy, that's a long meeting. And I qualified it as being robust. And I'm sure our viewers understand what the word robust means in our discussion. Uh, but f since then, I must say, thanks to the work of Ambassador Barton, thanks to the work of our diplomats, thanks to the work of everyone who's been involved, we have been able to regain consular access, something that uh, China has to do under the Vienna Convention, but was not doing. So, you know, you saw the statement we released, We've been able to get on-site uh, uh, virtual access to Michael Covering and Sperver to check their well-being, uh, to bring them news, and to let them know that all Canadians and actually many citizens of the world are seized uh, about their plight and that we're all working in the same direction. So in the hopeful side, I would say the fact that we have now consular access, it's never going to be acceptable. They should not be there in the first place. But making sure that we can check on their well-being, on their dietary requirement, on everything they may need from us, and that we have, that we can restore our full consular uh, rights uh, to protect them, is you know in a very difficult situation like that. When there's no alternative to diplomacy, these incremental incremental steps they still matter. So, do do you think that you are any closer to them being released than you were? A year ago, because we've heard the reports as well that the U.S. Justice Department is potentially working on a deal with Meng Wanzhou's lawyer that would see her go back to China. A lot of people are speculating that could be the trigger that would cause China to release the two Canadian citizens. Well, Have you talked to the Americans about that? You know, it's customary that we can talk about ongoing uh, court cases, whether they're in Canada or, for that matter, in in another jurisdiction. Uh, but we're certainly following that very carefully, as we would expect. And, people who are watching. Uh, 
Uh, but, but in a sense, I think that uh, what we've seen, I've always believed that the only way forward is engagement. You, you need to talk to, to make progress in any difficult situation. And that is a very difficult situation. Uh, but what I, I think, the thing that I've explained that happened in 2020, um, it, you know, allows us, like the Prime Minister says, to be hopeful that with, with the international pressure, uh, with the fact that we're calling it out at every opportunity, uh, with the fact that we're going to continue to work with this administration and next administration, and we're going to continue to work with our allies around the world. And that this case of Michael Kovrig and Michael Sperver, this type of coercive diplomacy, um, hopefully will make Beijing rethink, because clearly it's not working. Uh, you know, the world, the democracy I've been speaking, and, and this is not unique to Canada. Obviously, Michael Kovrig and Michael Sperver are, but this type of coercive diplomacy, we've seen it in other parts of the world, and I think you see a backlash. And, and hopefully, um, you know, that will, will demonstrate that this is never going to be acceptable, that we will stand up at every step of the way, <clears throat> and then we will speak about that. And, and, you know, I think when you look at the, the year end, uh, with the resolve uh, being firm and smart uh, in, in, our, in our engagement, um, I think the words of the prime ministers are wise in that respect. You've gotten tougher with China. What led to the decision to start shifting policy on that? China's changing, so our foreign policy needs to evolve. Um, and that's not unique to Canada. If you talk to my colleagues in many parts of the world, they'd say, well, what they had as their framework or foreign policy at the beginning of the year uh, is no longer really relevant now. Let me give you a very practical example. Who would have expected that China would impose national security law on Hong Kong? Uh, so when I, when I say to Canadians, uh, China of 2020 is not the China of 2018 or 16, it's not just a metaphor. It, it is the realization of colleagues around the world. I do speak with foreign ministers on a daily basis, and everyone is facing the same issue, is that things have been shifting. Uh, we, we've seen a more coercive diplomacy. We have seen probably one of the f worst form with respect to the arbitrary detention of Michael Kovring and Spaver. Uh, and, and the way to respond to that is, is to stand united, to speak with one voice. And, and that's what we've been doing, whether it comes to the situation in Xinjiang, whether you're talking about Hong Kong, you've seen Canada standing up, uh, and, and more than words, because people say, Yo, you've been doing declaration, but I said, look at the action. First country in the world to suspend the extradition treaty with Hong Kong. Uh, Canada, I spoke, for example, in the situation in Xinjiang way back uh, with the UN High Representative for Human Rights, uh, which I happen to know very well. And I said, what action are we going to take? What is the UN doing? How can we support? How can we gather countries around that? So it's both words and actions, but being firm and, firm and smart and certainly working with, the international, with our partners and allies. We've done that with the UK. We've done that with Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and in some cases with the G7. It's been four years since the initial reports of Havana syndrome by Canadian and American diplomats in Cuba who described everything from terrible headaches to nosebleeds and all kinds of unexplained symptoms. Canadian officials still haven't explained what happened, but there is a report that was commissioned by Congress recently, and it says the most probable cause of the injuries was directed pulsed microwave energy, and intelligence officials in the United States are pointing the finger at Russia. Do you believe that this was a directed pulsed microwave energy attack, and do you believe Russia was behind it? I saw the report that uh, you referred to, and obviously uh, one of my first duty uh, as the Minister of Foreign Affairs is, 
is uh, the duty of care to our diplomats around the world. And certainly, I take that very seriously. I spoke with the foreign minister of Cuba, for that matter, I think days ago. And, and obviously, this was raised. Um, I'm still awaiting for uh, our Canadian officials to assess that report that you saw, which was commissioned in the United States, uh, which points in one direction. Um, and, and certainly, in light of that, we will take appropriate actions because, um, you know, our, our fine diplomats who are going uh, in any parts of the world, our first duty is to protect them. And, and I'm still, uh, you know, as you know, it took a lot of time to assess that. It seems to be very complex in terms of the causes. They've been different. Well, uh, the Canadian officials had suggested exposure to pesticides yeah, they, at they've one been point. Other, and, and that's why, I mean, one thing you learn uh, when you're in office is to rely on experts in science. So I'll be guided by uh, those who, 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 who can make that assessment, Mercedes. Um, and certainly my role then is to take the appropriate action. But in terms of the cause and the science and the medicine behind it, and that I have to rely on the experts. We saw that, which is certainly going to be part of the body of evidence that, that our experts, Canadian experts, will have to assess and give me advice as to what is the, what is the most likelihood uh, and then for us to take appropriate actions. Are you worried about sending Canadian diplomats to Havana when we don't know what's happening? Well, I'm always concerned that until we know the causes, um, if there's a risk, uh, that is concerning to me. That's why uh, whenever we do that, or deploy, for that matter, people in other places, which uh, there could be any form of arm, um, that's always a tough decision that you have to, uh, to assess. But fortunately, I think we have the, some of the best experts, people here who advise me on security and health and safety, uh, to make sure that with the Deputy Minister, uh, we make the right decision when it comes to deployment of uh, diplomats abroad. You brought home uh, a little girl, an ISIS orphan who was stranded overseas. Canadian Special Operations Forces worked very closely with people here at GAC to bring her home. That was unprecedented. Tell me about what went into that operation and that decision. That's probably, you, you were asking me, the allied in, in a very difficult here for, uh, in many respects, for, for all of us. The viewers, you had to do a lot, we had to do. But um, in a difficult here, sometimes there's bright, shining light. And, and I think uh, bringing her back uh, was one of them. And, and I want to thank colleagues, uh, because this was really a, a whole of government effort, but certainly certain departments uh, were more directly involved with the Prime Minister. It took a lot of time because there's enormous complexities um, in, the, in, in uh, repatriating an orphan, as you would expect, uh, especially in a zone like we're talking, which is, uh, uh, is under the control uh, of a non-state actor, which is uh, uh, the Kurdish forces, uh, making sure we can do that safely. You know, our, our first priority and my first priority in the prime minister is always to, to make sure that whatever we do would be um, uh, you don't want to aggravate a situation. So you need to take enormous precaution, a lot of time in planning when. And yes, I want to thank uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. The, these men and women are extraordinary. I mean, I have the privilege uh, with the Minister of Defense to work with them on, on, on some operations in the planning and, and reviewing of their plans. But um, I'm always impressed. Um, and and uh, they had a tough year. Uh, they lost a number of service uh, uh, men and women. It's been a tough year. Uh, but I want, to, I want to say, and for our viewers, uh, they do extraordinary work uh, under extremely difficult circumstances. And 
and yet again they, 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 they have shown and proven to us that they are the best so that we can uh, we could uh, in this case uh, uh, bring the orphan back home safely and to be uh, reunited with extended family but this is one of the shining light of this year if you can make the difference in the life of one person uh, you know for me that's kind of uh, if, if only that if we can make and an, especially a young child uh, which will have a new life here in Canada well I say mission accomplished because that that was uh, but in this year uh, sadly I would say we had to repatriate also many other people in much less difficult circumstances but it's been uh, a year which I hope Canadians will see that we we were there for them in times of need. One last question for you Minister uh, it is now the end of the Trump administration new era with President-elect Biden coming in what do you expect to be your biggest challenge with President Biden, because we, we always hear, I know you're looking forward to working with the administration, but specifically, what is the biggest challenge on your radar that you're preparing to tackle there? Well, first of all, like I said at the beginning, I said President-elect Biden is good news for Canada. Uh, we, we have a number of people in his administrations with uh, Noel Canada, uh, for one, uh, the, the vice president-elect, uh, which knows Canada, my counterpart, uh, the Secretary of State designate, uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, I think used to be responsible uh, when he was number two at the State Department for Canada. So you're finding a very steady head. Uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see more stability and predictability uh, in, in, in that relationship. Um, and, and I think, and I'll come to your question specifically, but I say on the opportunity side, the response to COVID, the vaccine, the border. Um, I see also in the economic recovery. I mean, for me, um, you know, we often say let's build back uh, better. I'd, I'd like to say let's bid back better together. And, and I think that's something that's going to resonate. We see supply chains which go from global to regional, where resiliency is, is more important than efficiency now. And I hope that they will see the benefit of having an integrated supply chain like we have. I mean, there's not two partners who do more business together in Canada and the United States. We've been blessed by geography. Uh, I see also on the green, uh, on the green side with, with Senator Kerry, um, you know, aligning our policies, aligning our views and, and making a difference in the world and on multilateralism. So all that being said, to your point more specifically, I think that uh, certainly the administration, just like we are, uh, will have to uh, do a lot domestically, uh, the COVID response and the economic recovery. So um, as we do well as Canadians, it's going to be for Team Canada to always, uh, uh, you know, highlight to our U.S. friends uh, the importance of that relationship, what we can do together, and what can the special place of Canada uh, for the United States in, in as we look ahead for the next years together. Minister Champagne, thank you so much for joining us and, and for sharing some of the personal moments from your year as well. Thank you very much, and thanks for the good work you're doing and, and informing Canadians throughout a very difficult year as well. Thank so, you. Happy holidays to everyone who's uh, with us today. Happy holidays to you too. Thank you.